So I'm going to do the Bible reading, and it's from Matthew 5, verses 13 to 16. Check for confirmation. Yeah, good. Cool. Cool. No. There we go. All right. It's entitled Salt and Light. Jesus is speaking. He says, You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Hi, everybody. I'm on. Hi. Um, two quick announcements um, before I get started. Um, firstly, if you're not a regular here, if you're a newcomer, it's great to have you with us tonight. Um, if you grab the bulletin on the way in, you'll find a little yellow slip there. Um, on that, you can write your prayer request. We'd love to help you out by praying with you and the information. Um, oh, wonderful. It'll look like that. Um, about who you are so we can get in contact with you and help grow our community. And there's little boxes nearby, all the exits for you to drop that in when you head home. Um, secondly, church directory photos. Um, that's happening tonight if you're a member of our church community and your photo hasn't been done recently or not at all, like me, I'm a little phantom grey head, um, even though I'm on staff here, so um, I'll be getting that done tonight, maybe you should as well. Um, that said, let's uh, get into the scriptures. I'm going to pray. Father God, uh, what a wonderful blessing your scriptures are for us. They're full of wisdom, and you guide us in learning from them. So please send your spirit among us tonight. Um, please use it to um, use these scriptures to open up people's hearts. Um, just quicken our souls to the wisdom therein and um, guide my tongue as I speak about it. Um, just uh, enrich us all and show us how it is that we can be salt and light. We ask this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So we're working in Matthew 5 today, and uh, it's four little verses in the second little part of the first big part of teaching in the Gospel of Matthew. Now, the challenge with little slices of the Bible like this is finding out exactly uh, and appreciating where they sit in the greater scheme of the chapter they're in, in the book they're in, in the Bible proper, and not losing anything there. And if you take a little slice out by itself and don't appreciate the context, you get an effect kind of like a family photo where someone doesn't know how to work the zoom button and so you end up with like half a kid on the left and half a kid on the right and mum and dad chopped off at about nose level. Um, so we're going to go through that and look a little bit more closely at the context as well. So Matthew's chapters 5, 6 and 7 are all part of the Sermon on the Mount. So Jesus here is surrounded by crowds of people who are all drawn to him and they're there to witness this amazing healer teaching his disciples. It's a message for his followers first, but for everyone else 
to hear for those who would later become believers, the first Christians. And he's teaching them how he expects them to live. As Matthew presents it, this is the first time that Christ has slowed down and stopped to extensively teach something. And it's a calculated step. It's a critical ministry moment where he will be inspiring men and women with a new hope and uh, placing him on a collision course with the Pharisees, those arrogant teachers who refuse to understand. In the chapter just before this one, Jesus has endured his temptation in the desert. He's been there for 40 days with the devil and walked out victorious. He begins his ministry then with his miraculous ministry, uh, starting to tell people to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He roams around Galilee and gathers up his first disciples, begins doing his miracles, healing the sick, casting out demons, and then this stirs up these great crowds, naturally enough. People start pouring in to try and find him from Jerusalem and Judea and all through Syria, across the Jordan, uh, the Greek cities, the Decapolis nearby. And all these crowds are swarming up to try and uh, get healing for their sick loved ones and, uh, and to hear what he had to say. So now surrounded by this swarming throng of people, Jews and Gentiles, all spellbound by the wonders he's worked among them, Jesus takes a seat and starts teaching. He begins with the Beatitudes, the blessed are the meek, blessed are the merciful. And then after teaching about the virtues in people who are blessed, he arrives here where we are at verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. It's a common expression we use for good people, but what does it really mean? And up until about 100 years ago, heavily salted meat was a staple food for the masses. Unless you were rich, you couldn't really afford to have an animal killed every day for you to eat something fresh. They used to call it junk meat or salt horse. It probably was about as appetizing as it sounds. Um, but since no one had a refrigerator in their house, that was the only practical way to preserve food, was to pack it with salt. And uh, in first century Palestine, you wouldn't find very many cold days to help you out there. So it was either preserve the meat with salt, or it would be lost. It would rot, it would go bad pretty quickly. And if the salt that you had isn't pure, if it's uh, too impure with sand and other impurities there, it can't get the job done. In that case, it's not really salty enough. It's lost its saltiness. It's worthless, and all it's good for is throwing out. So Jesus is saying something about the world here when he's calling the disciples the salt of the earth. If the disciples are the salt of the earth, then the earth is rotting or in danger of rotting. It's becoming corrupt, it's going bad, and it needs preservation. And he's striving to equip them to do it. Now after talking about the salt, he moves on to another metaphor. He's talking about the light of the world. You are the light of the world, he tells them, and he uses two different images here. First one's the city on the hill, and then the lamp on the lampstand. Now, in the 21st century, we're pretty spoiled for light. Um, it's pretty easy to come by, and particularly city folk like myself have grown up with a lot of it flying around. Um, it's hard for us to understand in this day and age how dark dark can get, um, because even on the darkest nights here, you can still kind of find your way around. I've been camping out of town, sure, and it gets more dark there, but anyone who's grown up in a country town or on a farm will know that when it's a really dark night, it's not just hard to find your way dark. It's can't see three feet in front of your face dark. It's fall over anything in your way dark. And that's the kind of picture that Jesus is painting for us. 
And this is more than inconvenient to a traveler in first century Palestine. This is a deadly dilemma if you're trapped out there with no light. It's probably about as hard to light a fire in the dark as it sounds. If you know how to navigate by the stars, you might know how to get from north to south, but if it's an overcast night, then you don't even have that. This is the imagery that Jesus is providing us with, a world that is lost in darkness with a tiny light in the distance. Now, there's a certain ritual that I am convinced all young boys go through, and possibly young girls, I'm not sure. It comes at the end of that period of their life when they are afraid of the dark. Now, before this night, the vigilant parents would know exactly when their child had to visit the bathroom at night, because the world outside their door would grow progressively brighter as each light between their child's room and the bathroom turned on one by one, and if you're lucky, turned off again when they went back. Now, um, I may be showing my age here, because the, I'm sure the current generation wanders through brandishing their smartphone like Indiana Jones with a flaming torch going into a dark hole, but... Um, <laughs> but uh, there will come a night in this child's life where they wake up, awakened by a call of nature, and they reach for the lamp stand, or the, uh, the lamp on the bedstand, I should say, and stop and think to themselves, no, tonight I will walk in the dark. And they'll stumble through their room, knees banging into furniture, feeling around with their toes for where the carpet gives way to tile. And then, deliverance, a tiny red light. That's the standby light on the TV that means this is the living room. And if I can triangulate my position with the digital display on the microwave, I can find my way. Now, in this heavy blackness of night in the ancient world, it is easy to lose your way, but a city on the hill can be the difference between life and death. With some fires burning, some lamps lit, that tiny light in the distance is a real beacon of hope. And if you're living in a house in the ancient world and you've lit an oil lamp so that your home doesn't have to be as dark as the world outside, you'd be naturally inclined to place it well. Maybe on a lampstand in the center of the house so that the whole, life, the whole room can receive light. Now, a lamp that you can't see is useless. Its only job is to light up the dark. If you're not using it for that, if you're covering it up, then it has no purpose and it's worthless. Using it any other way is foolish. So that's the thrust of the message that Christ is preaching here. This is what he's preaching before he starts much later on using parables and more complex ways of expressing things, more difficult things. This is a pretty straightforward metaphor. Everyone listening must have understood what he was saying. If you live the kind of life that I ask you to, you'll hold back the corruption of the world, and when people see you do it, they'll be drawn to you. And we know this. We know we're supposed to do this, even if we can be a little unsure of how we're supposed to go about it. You see, Jesus finishes this thought with a command in verse 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. But then at the beginning of the next chapter in chapter 6, which we didn't read, but I'll read for you now, he says, Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. Go out into the world and live a life so bright that people are drawn to you 
but for goodness sake, don't let them see you. There's a slight problem of inconsistency there that might need a look. It's not as though Jesus has forgotten what he said and rambled onto something new. There's nothing wrong with his memory. In fact, he makes these two statements and makes sure that everyone sees you and makes sure that no one sees you almost in the same breath, one right after the other, and uh, with a little bit of space in between. So it's natural for us to look at them together. Now, this is the paradox of living for Christ. A follower needs both visibility and humility. Visibility and humility. The thing about selfless deeds and good works is that they have their own built-in reward. We take a job because we want to be paid for it. After a hard week of work, some numbers flow into our bank account, the balance goes up, we get some satisfaction from that. And likewise, if we go out that Saturday and volunteer our time with something like Lifeline or a church ministry, there's no pay, but there is a reward. It feels good to do good. You can come home that night exhausted and face plant on the couch and say to yourself, I did good today. I'm part of the solution. But that's just as well, otherwise a whole lot less good would get done. Unfortunately, we're tragically human. And part of being human is this ridiculous need to validate ourselves by comparison to others in everything. In income, in recreation, in ministry, in good works, in everything. This is the reason that if someone that you know did something particularly cool on the weekend, the first thing they will ask you when they see you on Monday is, what did you do on the weekend? Because they want the question back. Hey, welcome back. What did you do on the weekend? Just a quiet one, really. I slept in. I went skydiving. I jumped out of a plane. Yes, they put it on film so I can show everyone how much more fun I am. But it is nice to have a quiet one sometimes. Yes, that's And it is this need, this constant one-upsmanship, that infects every part of our interaction with each other. If you think that you have a boring job, then you'll be less inclined to ask someone else, what do you do? Because you don't want it being asked back. You're inclined to steer the small talk to something that you can be proud of, away from those things that remind us how disappointed we might be in ourselves. It's this instinct that is the lifeblood of the Facebook and Twitter revolution. If you sweep away the funny cat pictures, a lot of what you're left with is people telling each other how great they are. At the press of a button, you can tell everyone you know that you are going to the gym. There is no reason to tell them, but you can do it. Gone are the days when you need to work that into conversation. Now you can just tell everyone you know immediately. Now those who stick to their gym schedule can like that status and get on board, and everyone you know who doesn't stick to that schedule can feel like a lumpy pillow and surrender their precious one-ups. What a time saver. And likewise with our good works and our charitable giving and our selfless actions. Years ago I used to save up my silver coins in a jar the size of a football. The plan was to give them all to the church collection bag in one hit, so when I passed it on, it would be so heavy it'd almost break the other guy's wrist, and everyone after me would know that someone gave a lot. (laughs) 
And so the piano's playing quietly and everyone's meditating on their giving and the offering bag comes to me and a sound like a slot machine jackpot as I'm pouring these coins in. Everyone's turning around to look and investigate the sound and now all of a sudden they all know that I'm just giving shrapnel. <laughs> I was mortified. It was supposed to make me feel good because I felt like I was giving a lot of shrapnel. But it was somewhat lost in the fact that it was five and ten cent pieces. Crying out loud, can't you people see how humble I am? Never again. Now I get rid of my coinage one handful at a time over many different services. Like Steve McQueen in The Great Escape getting rid of the dirt from the prison escape tunnel. But we're not stupid. We have a sense for these things and we can usually tell if someone is doing something for one-ups or for some other reason. People can usually tell if something is for show or they can tell the difference between it being for something else. They can tell the difference between letting your light shine before others and practicing your righteousness in front of others. This is what Jesus is counting on. It's what he's requiring of his followers. You must do good things where you can be seen to do them. And people must be able to tell that the reason you're doing them is to preserve the world from this social, moral, sinful decay and attract people to the Father with your visible humility. Now later on in his ministry, Jesus will talk again about the light of the world. But this time it's not the disciples who are the light. In John 8.12, Jesus says, or rather the gospel says, Again Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness but have the light of life. So who's the real light of the world? Is it Jesus or his followers? It says both, so both have to be true. I'd say it's Jesus first and then his followers. When the Israelites are escaping Egypt after the Exodus, there's a moment when uh, Moses goes up Mount Sinai and then returns and his face is shining like the sun. And Jesus does the same thing. He goes up a mountain to pray, is transfigured to have this shining countenance, the light pouring off his face. Well, so too for us. Our intimacy with God and our relationship with him is the source of the light that we shine before others. Jesus' ministry climaxed in his death and resurrection to take away the sins of the world. But the three years before that, he did just what he was telling his disciples to do now. He did good works. He healed the sick. He cast out demons. And people were drawn to him because they understood that it wasn't just for personal recognition. There was something greater at play there. This is why he was so infuriating to the Pharisees. The Pharisees were people who were rich enough that they didn't have to work, but could spend their time literally just studying the laws and going around policing people who didn't hold to them as well as they did. They belonged to a certain level of society where they were particularly esteemed, were respected for how righteous they were. They congratulated each other on their piety. They were the moral rock stars of the old world, the ancient equivalent of a celebrity touring a poverty-stricken country and throwing their millions of dollars at problems and making everyone watch them think, man, I really wish I had enough money that I could give away millions. See, the irony in Jesus' rage against the Pharisees is that they were doing good works. They donated to the needy, they gave to the temple, they sacrificed, they tithed. 
A whole lot of hungry people in Jerusalem didn't go hungry and didn't starve because the Pharisees, the people Jesus beats up on all the time, gave the money to buy them food. They were doing good and it had plenty of visibility, but no humility. Now Jesus calls them hypocrites. It's his favorite charge to use against them, hypocrites. The word hypocrite coming from the word for actor. Someone who is pretending to be something that they're really not. So what exactly were they doing that was hypocritical? They chastised others for not following the laws of the Old Testament, but then they carefully applied themselves to following the laws of the Old Testament. They did a lot of practicing what they preached in the great scale of things. But Christ calls them hypocrites because they were acting as if their goal was to give glory to God. But their goal was to give glory to themselves, and he calls them out on it. This is the reason that he's so angry at them. The point of feeding the poor is not just so that people are fed. God is God. He can literally make bread rain from the sky. He doesn't need people to feed people. But Jesus, the light of the world, draws attention to himself so that then he can pass that glory on to the Father. Matthew 9, 6, Then he said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, go home. And he rose and went home, and the crowd saw it. They were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. Matthew fifteen thirty one. So the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, and the cripple healthy, and the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. The natural response to Jesus' ministry was to glorify God. If you are doing good things for people, and giving up that glory to God, then you are the light of the world. That's what Jesus says. Because you are doing now with what you have, what Jesus did perfectly. And that is the most elementary part and important part of reaching people for the gospel. I've always been jealous of others who seem to have a very easy time reaching out to others and talking about Jesus. You might, like me, have received similar advice to this. Well, when you're sitting on a bus, you sit next to someone you don't know, and you start talking about Jesus. And then you give them a spare Bible and invite them to church, and before you know, they're sitting next to you on Sunday. Just like that. Just like that. Now, there are folks who can do that, who God blesses in that way. There are folks who can start up Bible studies at their workplaces with all their workmates. And that's a wonderful thing. Folks who make the whole business of spreading the gospel look easy. But it's not easy. Some people God has given an extraordinary gift of evangelism. And he works with them by bringing people to them who are ready to hear the gospel, whom he has prepared. Now for others, the duty of evangelism does not seem to come so naturally. For these believers, their experience of sharing the gospel is full of friends who didn't understand and unanswered questions and bus rides where no one who gets on as a sinner gets off as a saint. If that's you, then these verses have a special liberating power. You don't need to be an apologetics professor to be the light of the world. You don't need to be able to cure the blind to be the salt of the earth. You are 
the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. There's no make yourselves like salt or try really hard and become light. Jesus states this flat truth to his disciples about what they are now. It's a refreshingly passive command. Be what you are. Be what you are. Do the good things that you are driven to do and do it so that others might see them and glorify God. And the best part is, it's so simple that if you're mindful of that one extra clause, don't do it for the one-ups. It's almost impossible to screw up. Just be good. Be merciful. Be kind. Have pity on the pitiful. Be diligent. People notice these things. They recognize it as different from the world. And when you help someone in distress and they say, thank you, you really bailed me out back there, you can say, happy to help. And they'll be expecting some kind of request for compensation. And when it never comes, they'll get suspicious. And they'll want to know why that is. As people who come to know you for the first time come to know you, they can tell there's something different about you. People who have known you for a long time can tell when you are changing. And if it's a change for the better, then they're curious about that difference. That difference is the thing that God will use when he is drawing people to you through the light that he has given you. Sometimes God uses miracles to, as proof of his power. Overwhelmingly, he uses people. And we are called to be those people. Even if we can barely string two words together, we can live good. Even in front of people you don't know, in front of people who wouldn't touch a Bible if you paid them, if you live good visibly and humbly, then God will use you to be a light in someone else's darkness. We can trust him to take care of the details of bringing that person in the dark to repentance, teaching them that that darkness is their sin, that the only way out of it is through Jesus' death and resurrection. We can trust him to put believers in that person's path. And sometimes it will be your privilege to connect them to the Savior. But what we can do in all circumstances, what we can do now, what we must do now, every day, is be what we are. Salt and light. Live good. Live with visibility and humility. And others will see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Let's pray. God, we praise you for your generosity. Not only the God who saves, but you choose to use people in the way that you save us. And you choose to use us in the way that you save others. Help us not to be hypocrites, Lord. Let our good deeds be visible but humble. And so be a light to the world. Use us to preserve the world from the decay of sin. Teach us how to live to drive others to glorify you. Show us where we can be your light and how we can work within your plan to be who you made us, to be who we are. We ask this in the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen.